So good morning, everybody. Nice to see you all. Am I am I loud enough? I don't. Is this head louder? Good. Um, my name is Mark Coleman, and um, very happy to be here and to explore this theme on the nature of the self. What is this mystery of this thing we call ourselves that we cherish so dearly? Um, that music was Jennifer Berezan, for those of you who don't know, she's a wonderful local singer and she's singing in the, one of the oldest goddess temples in Malta. Um, I often imagine that they were singing at the time of the Buddha, because that, those temples were probably quite alive two and a half thousand years ago. And uh, that CD is called Returning. And it's a chant of returning, returning home, returning to ourselves, returning to our true nature. And in a way, this day about exploring the nature of the self is a way of returning to our true nature and to see what gets in the way of that. So I'm curious why you came today, because <laughs> it's raining, <laughs> the Super Bowl's not on yet, I don't know. Um, what would does anybody like to say? What I'm, I imagine most of you are here to to explore a little more of this theme. So, um, anybody like to say share anything? What, what brings you here? Any word or two, or sentence or two? <laughs> yes, yeah, a very bold undertaking. Good. Great. No self, no problem. Yeah, may that be true at the end of the day. Did you have your hand up? noticing how attached she is, she is to uh, when emotions and thoughts come up as uh, how the attachment arises to the sense of me. Yeah. Um, I'm at a point in my life where I'm making decisions about the rest of my life and um, became interested in if it's not myself making those decisions, who exactly is it and what does that <laughs> process look like? So I'm hoping to shed a little bit of light on, uh, on that aspect. Okay, good. Let's see what we can do. <laughs> Find out who's behind it all. Who's running the show. After self falls away, what's left after that? Mm, great question. After self falls away, what's left to function in the world? Very good question. So we'll come back to that part of the day, um, but you can always bring that question back up again if I'm not, if I'm not bending around to it. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> good. Good. The spirit rock fix. Well, may it do what. Okay. Good. <laughs> Sir? self in the world, the self that's achieving and succeeding and yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, well that's that's just helpful to get a little read. I'm sure there's lots of other reasons why people are here, but um, so um, how I plan to do the day is um, is by not having too much of a plan. <laughs> So um, I do have some some things I want to share, uh, but I also want to sort of be organic to see what wants to unfold and uh, see what will be most useful for the group. So, um, so I'm going to give a talk right now. I give a talk this morning and a talk in the afternoon. There's many different entry points into understanding the teaching on the self, the Buddha's teaching on the nature of the self. So, um, and I think the more you know, it's like the more refractions of the lens, the more perspectives we take to look at it, the more, the more we, m- we might get a sense of how to understand it, how to hold it, how to work with this as a practice and as an insight practice. Um, so I'll be sharing different ways into it and how to hold it or reflect on it or understand it. So, um, and then we'll do some meditations, uh, more overtly looking at the, how the self manifests, how the self-construct manifests, how the identification happens, how we can learn to disidentify, and we can, we'll do some sitting practices, some walking practices, and maybe some interactive exercises as a way to also explore, because the the self becomes most prominent when we're um, around other people, engaging with other people, you know, all, all those other selves out there. Like as if one wasn't enough here, there's like all the millions of people out there. So um, that's where we mostly, uh, uh, one of the ways we feel it most poignantly. So, um, and then we'll go from there. So we'll see what, we'll see what wants to unfold. So I wanted to share this theme. It's, a, it's something that I've been exploring for, you know, I've been practicing, studying Buddhist practice for 25 years. Um, and uh, this theme has been of interest for me for quite a while, um, most of those 25 years. Um, I didn't really have a clue what it was about for the first mm, eight or nine years, I sort of just put it on the back burner, you know, I just developed, I, I just practiced mindfulness and loving kindness and, and, you know, the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths and that was plenty. And that is plenty. Um, 
And at some point, you start hearing about the teachings of self and selflessness and all the different ways it's called egolessness, not self. And um, began to I began to sort of probe, you know, what was that about? What, what is this mystery that, that's being pointed to? You know, I thought I was me. You know, I feel like me and um, feel very real and substantial. And what do you mean there's, not, there's no self? So to the mind, to the rational mind, the, this teaching often doesn't make a lot of sense. Anybody here confused about this teaching on selflessness? <laughs> Most of the room, good. All right. So this is not uncommon. Um, it's something that we really can't fully grok, understand with the mind. The rational mind can't quite figure it out. So... Um, you will try to do that anyway, no matter how much I say, don't bother trying to figure it out. The mind likes to figure things out and fix things and put things in boxes and understand things, and there's a place for that. And the insight that comes from meditation practice um, is a different kind of insight. It's not through just the ordinary, everyday thinking, rational mind. Are we recording this? Um, there's a, it's, a, it's a sort of a, it's more of a felt sense, intuitive insight that comes from our direct experience. And so that's what we'll be exploring in the meditations today, how to get a more direct experience of what's being pointed to. This is from Mark Twain. Mark Twain has a lot of interesting insights about the nature of the self, I noticed as I was studying this and just playing around online. He says, biographies are but the clothes and the buttons of the person. The biography of the person himself or herself cannot be written. It's an interesting way of talking about self. We can, we can point to the clothes and the exterior ex appearance, but can we really point to the essence, the nature? Can we write about that? Is it possible to put it into words and into form, into name? And the Buddha said uh, something which I... I reflect on a lot, he said, um, that which we conceive is ever other than is so. That which we conceive, that which we think about and perceive is mostly other than we actually think it to be. That our perception is not necessarily very accurate most of the time, which is something that we don't necessarily like to hear about because we value our perception as the way it is, is the truth, right? We think the way we see the world is how it is, and we're right, and if you have a different point of view, then perhaps you're wrong in some way, or you're in, in, in not perceiving. And again, Mark Twain wrote this, he says, we do not deal much in facts when we are contemplating ourselves. We do not much deal in facts when we're contemplating ourselves. So, um, one of the things the Buddha said about his teaching, uh, he said his teachings are ehipasiko, opanayako. Ehipasiko is an invitation to come and see and check it out for yourselves. So he wasn't interested in dogma. He wasn't interested in converts. He was interested in people looking, uh, taking his teaching and looking to their own experience and see if it was true. Not to just take on another bundle and baggage of ideas that we've, to add to already very heavy backpack of ideas and concepts, right? So I 
present these teachings very much in that spirit today that um, they're an invitation for you to look into your experience uh, and to see if it's true, see if it bears some relationship to your experience. And if not, you know, <coughs> take an invitation to explore more deeply, but not to take it on as truth just because the Buddha said it or I said it or you read it in a book, or, but to really verify it from your own practice, your own investigation. And he also said the teachings are opanayako, they're a timeless, but they're also available, they're very imminent. We can see, understand these teachings in the here and now, they're not to be discovered somewhere else. And so we will use the practice of mindfulness today, as we do in this practice of vipassana, because that's the, the central practice that helps us ground in the present moment to see what's, what's actually happening. <coughs> So, and why do we, why, why have this day on, on the nature of the self? Why, why did the Buddha point to this very uh, not so obvious piece of understanding or teaching? He pointed to it because <coughs> to misperceive and to grasp and attach to a sense of self that isn't as it is, is a cause of suffering, is one of our root causes of suffering. Just as Beth was mentioning about um, the way that we uh, have some desire or some grasping about who we want to become or how we want to succeed in the world, the attachment to that, the attachment to the sense of self around that can cause a lot of suffering. Not that we don't have plans and visions and goals and, and intentions, but the sense of self that gets wrapped around that, the identity, the self-image, that is the, uh, can be very problematic and causes suffering. The Buddha, the Buddha said, this teaching is taught for the elimination of all views, determinations, biases, inclinations, and obsessions. So we're here to look at this view of self that we have that we probably haven't really even looked at very much before to see what it is. How do we conceive of ourselves? How, what, what, what do we do when we have this idea of this construct of ourselves? How does it affect our world, our reality? So this is the wisdom from the New Yorker cart cartoon strip. Some of you may have uh, seen this in the New York. It, it went around the, the web for a while. So there's a couple watching TV, and it says, This week on the amazing race to enlightenment, Jim and Susie achieve right mindfulness, and will Bob and Candy be eliminated for relentless clinging to the self? <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's good to have a sense of humor about these things <laughs> with ourselves. And so about 10, 12 years ago, Time Magazine, no, 10 years ago, uh, it was sort of the, the beginning of the, 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 the research on the brain and the sort of popularization of that, of, of all of the interesting neuroscience that was in the research on 
the brain and the self and the mind. And um, they came out with some startling revelations. They were trying to find the, the, uh, the, uh, the doer, the person, behind the, the, the person behind the brain, like who's running the show? Like who's, who's directing this thing that we call me? And the, the conclusion was after more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have long since concluded that there is no conceivable place for a self to be located in the physical brain and that it simply does not exist. There you go. Your answer. <laughs> right there. Time magazine should have caused a huge national scandal. <laughs> Except it just sort of petered out in the words of the magazine. That there is no conceivable place for a self to be located in the physical brain. So they were trying to find the, the, what we think of or experience as the, you know, the person, the, the who's behind the show, who's pulling the strings, who's deciding, who's making choices, who's all of that, you know, that we take to be me, that we take to be myself. Yeah? And they said they couldn't find it. Maybe their, maybe their, um, their uh, technology wasn't sophisticated enough. Or maybe they're onto something. You know, much of the neuroscience research is um, proving a lot of things that the Buddha and others discovered thousands of years ago. So we're just catching up in some ways. So um, one way of understanding, looking at the sense of self, um, is to look at it as the, um, the construct or the idea or the image that we, that we very habitually create in our minds moment to moment and have as the sense of me that we are constantly referring to, constantly self-referencing, constantly imagining, bolstering, improving, fixing, changing. So if you look back on your week, um, you can maybe see how the sense of self changes over time, over a day, over an hour, over a week, over a year, over a lifetime. Maybe this week, you know, Monday morning, you started really fresh and enthusiastic. Okay, this week's going to be really make strong intentions, and you started off as the enthusiastic worker bee and all, you know, high-spirited, and, and then you get to work, and there's all kinds of conflicts and inevitable politics, and at the end of the day, you end up being the dispirited one and the depressed one. Next day you start again and you're the not so hopeful one, but you're still going to give it a go kind of t person. And you know, and so we go through these different machinations. Um, we have a beautiful romantic evening with our partner, and we suddenly feel like we're the, you know, the the one who's in love and the one who's um, loving. And then the next morning you have a fight about who's taking the trash out and you suddenly feel like, like the identity of being the great lover and the great romantic is suddenly petered out and you're suddenly the one who wants to get out of a relationship. Or you may perhaps in your meditation, you start a meditation and, um, you know, again with that high spirit is sort of, okay, I'm going to be the, I'm going to develop some concentration and clarity and and lo and behold, miraculously that happens. You get really concentrated and focused, and it's a very blissful, radiant meditation. And what happens? Rather than just leaving that experience as it is, there's, a, there's the self, the selfing process, we could call it a process, 
rather than a static thing. It, it's more helpful to think of it in terms of a verb than a noun. The selfing process starts um, clinging to that experience. Oh, <coughs> look at this meditation. I'm, I'm getting really good at this. Like, I'm really on track. Like, I, I think I'm a pretty good meditator these days. All that meditation paid up. Now I'm, now, I'm really, now I'm really something here. You know, I could maybe teach this, you know, in a couple of years, you know. And <laughs> suddenly the teach yourself comes, and you're writing a book about meditation, and, you know, and off we go. You know, there's the se- another self gets created, the meditating self, the good meditator, the teacher, the one who knows the confident one, right? We take birth. It's like taking a birth in a self. And then, of course, often what happens, just like this is story I tell of when I was teaching in India, and this young man came up to me. We were on a retreat, and uh, he'd had a great morning meditation or day. I forget how long it was. And he was, like, flying, and he was loving his meditation, loving his silence. And he was so excited. He was thinking about becoming a monk and going to Burma and ordaining and finding a cave and meditating for years and just really deepening in that you know delicious meditative space. And and of course, all that planning just created a lot of agitation. So he started getting restless and, and distracted, and his concentration went, and it started getting really difficult. And you know, all the things that can happen in meditation. The next day, he was so fed up with his restless mind, he wanted to leave the retreat. <laughs> so he went from being you know the great meditator, the monk, the you know, the spiritual aspirant to the one who's checking out and going to go and going finding a party somewhere, you know. So we see how the sense of self changes moment by moment, day by day, meditation by meditation. Some people feel like they're as good as their last meditation. Some teachers feel like they're as good as their last talk, you know, or performers as good as their last performance, you know. So we, we take our self-sense, you know, by a lot of, often by what we do, how we are in the world, in our experience, in our, in, in our world, right? And so we can see how that's incredible uh, set up for suffering, right? Because the world is so changeable, meditation is so changeable, anything is, is changeable, you know, we can be the, the best performer, speaker, poet, whatever it is you are, in the, you know, and the next day, you know, you write the worst poem in the world, or you give the worst performance at work or at singing or whatever it is you do. So if we, if we ascribe value and reality and happiness to that sense of self, it's a setup because it's very unstable. The sense of self isn't the same. It's a changing phenomenon, just like everything else is changing, and so it's not so reliable. Mark Epstein, who's written some interesting things on this subject. He wrote the book, Thoughts Without a Thinker, uh, exploring this theme from the relationship of psychotherapy and Buddhism. And I love that, th- that title, Thoughts Without a Thinker. It's a very insightful pointing that we have these thoughts, but there's no thinker behind them. They're just thoughts arising in the mind. He says, about the I we are studying is not identical with the ego, but is a component that is described as a self-representation, a fused and confused, constantly changing series of self-images. So when we break it down and look and pay attention and look more closely, which is really what these teachings are pointing to, we, pay atti- we look more closely to our experience 
and to see what is this sense of self. You know, if, if, you, if someone asks, who are you? You'll say, well, I'm me. I'm, this is who I am. And we point here. We point to our heart. We point to the center of our being. This is me. You know. But what is this me? You know, when we start paying attention to it, it's not... Me sounds really solid. Right, me. Well, I'm me. You know, I'm, I've always been me, and I am me, and I will be me. Like, what's your problem? You know, it's pretty substantial. But when we actually investigate it with our, you know, with our attention, we start to see this me is not so solid, not so stable. I don't mean in a mental health issue way, but just not so, just changeable. The Buddha said, which is your true self, the self of yesterday, that of today, or that of tomorrow, for whose preservation you clamor? He also said, that which is transitory, is it possible to say, this is myself, this is I? Can we ascribe a sense of meanness to all these very changing states? Maybe just look at this morning, you know, the sense of yourself as you woke up. How was that? to, you know, that getting in the car to, oh, no, I, oh, no, do I have to get up? You know, do I really want to do this day long? You know, and then you have your coffee. It's like, oh, I can't wait to do the day long. This is exciting. <laughs> and you get in the car, oh, it's raining. Oh, I should just stay home and read a book. And then there's traffic. And then, you know, it's how it changes. You come in here and there's excitement. You know people, oh, you don't know anybody. Do I fit in? Do I not fit in? Do they like me? Do they not like me? Oh, I don't know. Very unsettling. So one of the places I notice this a lot is, um, and I'll talk some about this throughout the day, is um, when I'm outdoors in nature, which I spend a lot of time outdoors, and I'm on my own, and um, for many people, being in nature is, is one of the easiest places to access uh, this uh, perception of self, not self, changing nature of self. So how many of you had the experience when you're outdoors somewhere, you're out hiking, you're in the woods, you're in by the ocean, you're in the desert, you're you know, on your own somewhere, and you spend some significant time outside, and you sort of forget about yourself. You forget about your worries and your life and your problems and the to-do list, and you're just, you know, walking or lying in the sun, and you're just, you're just there. There's just, but you're not there anymore. You're just, there's just, you're just present. There's just presence, connection, interest, love, quietness, stillness, ease, peace, right? And the sense of self that we're always so preoccupied in, and looking, how do I look, and what am I going to do, and my life, and my problems, and that suddenly dropped away, and there's just what? There's just, you're just present. And there's peace. Just see if you can feel into that right now, that moment that you, I'm sure you've all touched somewhere in nature. Maybe it's in music, maybe it's in art, maybe it's lying in bed <laughs> before your mind kicks into gear. Right? There's a certain peace that comes from that experience. And then, as a, and I notice in my experience, you know, you know, a clan of mountain bikers come pummeling down the track, <laughs> shouting and hooping and hollering, and suddenly that bliss of unity and peaceless, selfless state 
gets gets um, ruffled by the, the presence of another and the sense of the sense of self rapidly comes by. Oh my God, what's that going on? Who are they? What do they want? Am I safe? Am, am I? How do I look? You know, <laughs> should I put my clothes back on? I don't know. Uh. And suddenly that self-identity is right back, right? And that sense of peace, unity, oneness has gone. And there's me and there's them. There's them and there's me and the nature and God, maybe there is scorpions here. I don't know. Rattlesnakes. I don't know. I'm in my safe, you know. And that, that contraction back into that very familiar sense of self, self-contraction, you could say, is a really good indication of the variability of this experience and to see the suffering that comes from that very habitual identity. Because we see when that habitual self-referencing is quiet for a moment, it's actually very peaceful. There's you know, no self, no problem, somebody pointed to that book. In that moment, there's no problem. There's just what is, right? So, um, you know, I often ask people to pay attention to this state in the, in the morning when you first wake up. And I've been paying a lot of attention to this recently. I've, I used to be one of these people who used to, you know, wake up and just jump out of bed and on with the day. And, and now I sort of savor that, that time and just, you know, I wake up and, um, and just feel into the stillness and the peace that's there prior to the self the mind, the egoic consciousness kicking into gear with my to-do list and fears and problems and anxieties and, you know, all the stuff of that we just, you know, tumble around the tumble dryer. And again, we see, we have an indication like, oh, look, look, what, look what that state is like when that selfing egoic mechanism isn't so activated, yeah? And then at a certain point in time, it kicks into gear after some seconds, if you're lucky, some minutes, or maybe longer. Or maybe you see it and you relax it and then you come back to just resting, to being. This is, a, um, I'm going to read you two versions of this poem. One, one that's, that's one of my favorite um, expressions of this the way the sense of self dissolves in nature. It's from Li Po. He writes, The birds have vanished into the sky, and the last remaining clouds have faded away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. You get that sense? You're sitting on the mountain. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. That we, as a separate identity, dissolve, and there's just what... There's just what here, the mountain. So I came across another translation of this online, which I thought was quite amusing. Uh, it speaks to this, the, the how, how much of a self-reference and culture we're in. All the birds have flown up and gone. A lonely cloud floats leisurely by. We never tire of looking at each other, only the mountain and I. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very different translation. Talk about narcissism. We never tire of looking at each other. The mountain and me. <laughs> Only the mountain and me. We're so special. 
Isn't that great? So don't believe everything you read, right? Especially on the internet, especially a translation of a piece of work. So um, it was very instructive. I don't know where that translation is from, but. So, yeah. So one of the reasons why we, uh, that happens in nature so easily for, how many, is that, how many people can get what I'm talking about in nature? How many people is that? A, that's most of you. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons that that is so is because uh, when, we, when we leave um, a human, uh, you know, a human, I forget the expression, but a human-centered world, man-made world, um, that's full of self and selfing, that, that process of, of self-referencing, of e ego-referencing. And we go out into the woods, say, here, beautiful woods, the, the nature isn't selfing itself. You know, the, the oak trees are going, check this out, man. These bay trees are just, you know, they're just, <laughs> you know, like just so lame, like we're so old and gnarly, and you know, they're just being oak trees, right? The, the bays are being bays, and the oaks are oaking, and the deer are deering, and the grass is grassing, and it's just being itself. There's no sense of egoic processing in the way that we understand it going on. And so what it does is it allows us, we're, you know, we're affected by our environment. You know, the, the mirror neurons are, are you know, we, uh, get activated in whatever environment we're in, so we mirror the environment to some degree. And with this absence of selfing allows the self-referencing to relax, to soften, to quieten. This is from the poet Wendell Berry, who speaks about it in a beautiful way. He says, when despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and where the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. So we can all, we can all have those moments. We can rest in the grace of the world. And I think what's, what he's pointing to uh, when he says, um, I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. We come into the presence of things that do not tax them, their minds, their, their being with all the problems that we can get into. You know, as, as, as humans, we have these amazing minds, these amazing capacity to think and reflect and to plan and to futurize and remember, and which is amazing, but it also causes a lot of problems. It also causes a lot of suffering because we can spend a lot of time taxing ourselves with forethought of all the problems that are going to happen to us. What about my 401k? What about my retirement? What about my health care? What about yada, yada, yada? Well, let's just have some breakfast <laughs> and start there. How about we get out of bed? <laughs> so as I said, we can access these moments where the self is quiet, where the selfing mechanism is quiet, when, we, when we're absorbed. Right? We're absorbed in our work, in our art, in our music, in our creativity, in our dance, in our whatever the expression is for you. Um, or it can be just as simple as you're having a cup of tea and you're just having a cup of tea. You're just quiet, just present. 
and it's a very delicious experience. You know, I, I, uh, one of my, my hobbies is I like to dance. And, um, and there's those times when the self-consciousness dissolves and there's just movement. There's just the body moving itself as the way it wants to move with the music. And it's a very delightful, free experience compared to the self-conscious, well, now I'm moving and how do I look and do I look good and do they notice me and... That's a lot of selfing, a lot of selfing, a lot of contraction, a lot of separation. So, um, so the Buddha talked about five um, areas that we um, that we cling to, that we that we um, reify, that we most. Um, <coughs> Establish the sense of self through. Guess what those five are? Hmm? Senses? Desire. What are the five things that we that that we most cling to as self? Thought is one. Perception. Body. Three. Emotions, feelings, four. Forms, that would be body, that would be form. And consciousness is the fifth, more subtle, way more subtle. So the, the, he called these the five aggregates, the five skandhas, the five, the translation is heaps, the five things the five constituents that, that he saw as the sort of the, the main elements that comprise ourselves, our body, our feelings and emotions, perceptions, uh, mental processes, thoughts, constructs, etc., and and consciousness, that which is aware, that which knows. So and this is a very important list in, in the Buddha's teaching um, as a way to understand this this constructed sense of self, where we, where we habitually identify. So the most obvious one is the body. You know, who, who are you? Well, I'm me. I'm here. You know, this is how I don't know I'm here because I can you know, see myself. I feel it. I'm the same, look like the same body as I was this morning and yesterday. I look in the mirror. Yep, there I am. That's me. Nasruddin, the, the, the crazy wisdom Sufi teacher, goes into a bank one day and uh, goes to cash a check and goes up to the counter and says he's about to cash his check and the woman says, I need to see your ID before you cash the check. So he starts rummaging in his pockets you know, everywhere and finally pulls out a mirror, looks in the mirror and goes, yep, that's me. <laughs> so that's what we do every morning. We got confirmation of that we exist. Oh, yes, that's me. Have you noticed how what you see in the mirror and your inner experience are two completely different worlds? especially as we get older. Is that really me? That's not how I feel. I feel, you know what I love about, I do a lot of wilderness retreats, and I so often go off for 10 days, a couple of weeks, and I, we don't see a mirror for two weeks. It's very liberating. And then you come back, you know, and you're in the bathroom, and you're washing your hands, and you say, oh, God, is that, who's that? Like, what's that? That's got nothing to do with this, or whatever this is. Very interesting experience. 
So this body, this very amazing thing that we inhabit, these body clothes, these form that we take, we take on these body clothes for a period of time, and then we, then we leave it, leave the form. It's both an amazing, mysterious wonderland, also a great cause of suffering, and a great cause of attachment. We're very attached to our bodies. Right? Is anybody here not attached to their bodies? And yet the, the body is a, um, can we really say that it's who we are? Can we really say that it's, it's all of who we are? When you're in the hairdressers and you're uh, getting your hair cut and all, your, all your, the hair that you've so beautifully, lovingly taken care of for all those years is now on the floor, you don't go, oh, there's me, I'm going to take me home and put me in a box and, you know. We don't take the hair home, right? But it was something that was very close to who we wa- who we are, right? And we cut it off, and it's like, oh, it's gross, you know. It's like nails, you know. We don't keep our nails in a box and you know keep ourselves all <laughs> happily together, you know. It's like, no, it's ew, yuck. So we have these bodies that are a mysterious, organic. naturally occurring, naturally functioning organism that does itself by itself. It doesn't need any of our help, mostly. So we're made of a hundred trillion cells that are performing something, some action in every, in every moment. In every moment, there's f- apparently those f- cells do five things a second. Five things a moment. So every moment we're doing five trillion, quintillion things which is why we're so tired at the end of the day. <laughs> so, and in this sentence that I'm going to say now, which has already just happened, we've just lost 50,000 of those cells. It's kind of sad, isn't it? But don't worry, because 50,000 more will be created in the next sentence. Just like that. Isn't that amazing? 50,000, without you doing anything. You have to go, okay, nucleus, okay, mitochondria. You know. No, it just happens. It just happens. We replace our body, and the body is replacing itself. The skin every six weeks or something like that, it might be months. The stomach every six weeks. The liver every month. The liver is huge. replaces itself every month by itself. A hundred billion blood cells we replace every day. That's a lot of, that's more, that's a lot of, that's a lot of blood cells. Our eyebrows every six weeks, our hair every you know, well, if it does come back every three to five months. So we, we say this body is me, but yet it's just doing its thing. Yeah. And the good news is if you don't like yourself, you can be guaranteed you're going to be different in a couple of months. You know, hair, body, skin, stomach, you know, it's all going to change. Yet it's, it's very hard to not identify with this as who I am. So in meditation, we get a little different reference point. We're sitting, we're breathing, except the breath is just breathing itself. The body's breathing itself. We're not really breathing. We can control the breath momentarily. 
as we do in meditation sometimes. But the breath is just breathing itself, the heart's beating itself. And there's some quality of awareness that's present to it, sometimes, occasionally, on a good day. Friend told me the story of a of a friend of his who went into hospital and uh, he was getting a um, kidney stone removed or a tumor removed or something and they were wa- he was able to watch the operation on the screen mm. and he had you know he was, he was a practitioner and he was um, kept asking himself is that me <laughs> is that who I am you know at the end of the operation they give him whatever it was some tumor or stone or something and they, he could take it home. Is this me? Is this who I am? So from a meditation point of view, when we pay attention to these experiences, sensations in the body, breath, pain, rapture, space, tingling, vibration, we, c- we can get a little more of a vantage point that's a little more settled back, and we just see that these sensations, these experiences in the body are just phenomena coming and going in awareness. That's really what's happening. They're no more self than anything else. We didn't will them into being. We didn't ask our our knees to suddenly start hurting. We didn't ask our backache to suddenly fire up. It just happens. It organically comes and goes. And we can see how we can identify like, oh, no, my back pain, my knee, my problem, my, I should get this fixed. Why didn't I go to the doctor? Oh, no, I should see the surgery. And and we see how that selfing process like thickens that whole experience, or we can settle by and go, oh, the sensations, this tingling, coming and going. It's known in awareness, effortlessly. And when we, when, we, when we hold that vantage point, there's more space, there's more perspective, there's more clarity, there's more ease, there's more capacity to be with that experience because we're not so, us, the sense of self isn't so wrapped up in it. So another place we identify very strongly is with our feelings. We all have a certain predisposition to certain feelings. Maybe we're more of the angry, sort of aversive, reactive disposition, or we're more of the sort of greedy, lustful, clinging, you know, or we're more of the sort of melancholic, depressed. You know, we have these sort of tendencies, and because they they sort of become entrenched over time. We, we, ta- we identify with them as who we are. You know, I'm an angry person, or I'm a depressed person, or I'm a happy person, or I'm a sad person, or I'm a, you know. So pay attention to how you, how you partly construct your identity through your emotional life. How we take a lot of, how we reference ourselves through our emotions. And again, when we pay attention from the perspective of awareness, they're simply conditioned emotions and feelings that arise and pass you know, perennially through the day, through our lives. And we can see the difference between when we cling to them as, oh, I'm an angry person, I'm a sad person, versus, oh, there's sadness here, there's anger here. Coming and going, impermanent, conditioned by thoughts, by feelings, by events, by whatnot. So um, here's a, this is one of my favorite cartoons I like to read. 
Um, which is a, an example of how we identify. So it's called the checklist of feeling pathetic. <laughs> the ways that we, you know, how the selfing process causes suffering. Choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. <laughs> this is a great thing that we do as, a, as you know, as, as an egoic self. We compare, we create a lot of suffering. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. <laughs> Relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. How often do we do that? We meditate, we spend half an hour in meditation thinking about these horrible things. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. <laughs> Especially people with our last name. <laughs> Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. And resign yourself to feeling that from now on this is how you'll always feel. So, you know, we're funny, we, do, we do funny things with our, with our mind and our, and, our, and our thoughts and our emotions and basically cause ourselves a lot of suffering by the way we grab onto these things. You know, when we lose presence, when we lose mindfulness, lose awareness, we get sucked into the vortex of these things. We take them to be the whole reality. We take identity from them. We cling to them. We see, think that they're who we are and we kind of feel bad about ourselves or depressed or judgmental. So, and I'm going to quickly go through these in uh, the, the last two. Um, so the third place that we uh, identify with is, is our perceptions. This is a little more subtle. But again, it's because we, we have a s place of self-referencing and a vantage point, we take our vantage point to be how it is. We take our perception to be how it is, the truth of how it is. Now, you, ever, you ever watched a movie? You go out with a couple of friends and you watch this movie and you know, one person says, that was a, just a great movie. Like, it was so deep and so rich. And another person says, that was just so boring and so dull and like shallow. And it's the same movie. You know? And that's true with every experience. You know, everything that we do, we have a different, everyone has a, their own subjective perception. And yet we so believe that this perception is true, is essential to who I am. So um, the, there's a, a line from this great Korean master who uh, had this line where he'd say, don't side with yourself. Don't side with your perceptions. See that they're just what they are. They're, they're a subjective perception based on conditions and whatnot. So the last two um, places we identify, um, the, the, the fourth is probably the second strongest, I would say. Um, emotions, the body, I'd say, is, this, is this most common. But the second is our thoughts, our mental processes. That we take our thoughts to be often the most essential part of who we are my thoughts. We take a lot of ownership of, m our, of our thoughts, that they belong to me, that they're special, that they're unique, that they're original. You know. Of course, we, had, we thought most of them yesterday. <laughs> you know, Stanford somehow 
God knows how they chronicled that we have, they thought we think about 60 to 90,000 thoughts a day. 90% of them we thought yesterday. Stunningly unoriginal. <laughs> so, um, in a very f uh, uh, well-known sutta teaching that the Buddha gave to a man called Bahia, when Bahia, who was a very ardent young seeker, asked him, please, you know, give me the, uh, the, the synopsis, give me the essence of your teaching. The Buddha was, you know, maybe had a reputation for being a little verbose, so he just wanted the, you know, the pith of the pith. And so uh, the Buddha said, okay, it's like this. In the seeing, there is just the seeing. In the hearing, there is just the hearing. In the sensing, there is just the sensing. In the thinking, on the cognized, there is just the cognized. This is the end of suffering. When you know that there's just hearing in the hearing, seeing in the seeing, sensing in the sensing, cognized in the cognized, you'll know that there's no here, there, or anything in between. This is the end of suffering. So what he's pointing to is our, our is, is experience is very simple. There's just sights, there's sounds, there's smells, there's, there's taste, there's touch, there's thoughts, or perceptions. And then out of that, we create this world of concepts and ideas and separation and preferences and ideologies and isms and religions. And but our experience is very simple. Like right now, as you're sitting, what's here? The data, the raw data of our experience, there's just sensations of sitting. There's perceptions of light and color and form. There's sounds. perceptions as thoughts. Quite simple. But we, may, we, we add on, we make a lot out of those experiences. Try looking at a person just with the raw data of that experience of this mostly seeing. Hopefully not too much smelling, just the seeing, you know. Um, without the mind spinning, with ideas, judgments, preferences, stories. This is that kind of a person. They're like my friend. Or, no, they're, they're, they must be a lawyer. I can tell the way they dress. No, you know. Story, story, story. What are we seeing? We're just seeing a form and color and shape, light. This is from Byron Katie. Mind gives birth to infinite worlds of this and that, loss and sorrow, good and evil. It's complete from the beginning and exhaustible in the production of what isn't. Mind is inexhaustible in its production of what isn't. Believing what you think, you're carried off into the endless dramas of the <coughs> self. So uh, coming out of sleep, when the eye arises, not until you wake up and say, I. When the I arises, welcome to the movie of who you think you are. But if you question it, there's no attachment. <coughs> it's just a great movie. Get the popcorn, here it comes. 
welcome to the movie of your life. How many movies about your life do you run every day? You know, we're sitting in meditation and we run these movies. Guess who they're about? They're about me <laughs> and my life and my plans and my fantasies and my vacations and my distresses and my relationships and my work colleagues and my you know, future home improvements and endless fabrications. How many of those thought fabrications actually happen? <laughs> How many of those things that you planned for actually happen? How many of those conversations you rehearsed actually happen? I'm not saying there's, there's a place for thought. Thought is an amazing mechanism of the mind, and we do amazing things. We write books and novels and create, you know, architecture and music and the internet and all the amazing things. But it's kind of a little out of control. We've lost the off switch. We've lost the operating instructions, as Wes says. My friend and colleague was teaching at, uh, not teaching, he was, we were on a, a long retreat together on the East Coast. And um, it was a three-month course, and on these three-month courses, people are generally pretty quiet, you know, you get pretty still after a while, no talking, just meditating. And, um, and this one particular year, there was, a, there was a, a person who was not quite of that same quiet disposition. He was incredibly loud and busy and just wore numerous clothes and they were all this nylon kind of, you know, stuff that makes a lot of noise. And whenever he would walk, he was just like this kind of cannonball of cacophony would walk down the hall. And um, well, it was interesting to work with as a meditator. Anyhow, so one day he's walking down, my, my friend's doing his walking practice in this quiet corridor that people go down to for a lot of solitude and, and this guy comes bumbling past <laughs> and all of his loudness and bigness of being. And uh, and the thought that occurs to my friend was, well, at least I've got less self than he does. <laughs> <coughs> so another of the, you know, as I said earlier in the meditation, um, we'll do some walking practice soon and um, one of the things that I notice for myself and others is, you know, when we're walking, because walking is so much more, as, as opposed to meditation where we're very inward, when we do walking meditation, it's ex external, you can see each other, there's some much more self-consciousness and uh, self-referencing and comparing. And, um, and often what people report is, you know, they're doing walking meditation and, you know, they're just minding their own business, you know, and, and but maybe one day they're getting really into the groove of doing it and feeling really present and mindful and poised. And, and instead of just allowing that experience to be as it is of just presence and connection and mindfulness, there's, a, there's the self-referencing. The I thought arises and it adds onto the experience, oh, I'm looking pretty good right now. <laughs> I'm looking like the Buddha, you know, really mindful. I hope somebody else notices. I'm going to pretend not to notice, but I'm going to secretly look out the corner of my eye in case anybody does, because I know I'm looking really cool. <laughs> so we do that a lot. That, that the self-referencing pops its head up. 
so lastly, we, um, we can identify with, with consciousness itself. We can identify with that as who we are. That I'm the one who's aware. I'm the one who's knowing. I'm the one who's seeing. So the ego will appropriate any aspect of our experience. This is a more subtle place to investigate because we emphasize a lot awareness and mindfulness and it's easy to take to set up residency in that identity. That I'm the one who's aware. I'm the one who's mindful. As opposed to awareness just happening by itself as you hear a sound like this. You don't have to struggle to be aware. You don't have to the eye doesn't have to rise to say, okay, now I'm going to be aware. A sound appears and is known quite effortlessly in awareness by itself. There's no I in there. There's just awareness knowing a sound. And it's, it's a useful inquiry to ask, what is, what is it? What is aware? What is that knowing? So um, <clears throat> that's a, a whistle-stop tour through the five skandhas, through the five aggregates, and the, the five common places that we can hang our identity, put our I thought. So um, I imagine this probably generated some thoughts, some more thoughts, and maybe some questions or some disagreements or some... some something. So um, we're going to have plenty of time for there to be discussion. I don't want to get into that now because we've already talked a lot. So I ac actually want us to do a little practice and then we can come back to, I, I want us to sort of explore this in our experience rather than just debate intellectually. Because um, the point of this is to, is to experience it practically through our experience. So um, what I'm going to see, we'll do a quick exercise and then we'll take a break because I know probably we need a pee break soon. <coughs> so we'll do a quick exercise, take a little break, and then we'll come back for some longer meditation. So right now, just, just take a comfortable seat. If you can, let the thoughts, the words, the ideas, the concepts, let them sort of fade to the background. Just settle into the experience of now, experience of being here. of sounds, notice how sounds are known quite effortlessly in awareness. 
and just to sense into this moment. The sense experience of sitting. When you let go of any image of the body, any image of yourself, There's sitting, there's awareness, there's perhaps sensations coming and going, sounds appearing and disappearing. When you look to your experience, is there any age? any gender, any race, any profession, relationship status, and let all those ideas or concepts, constructs, experiences, let those go and just look to your direct experience. As the Buddha said, the sounds, the sensations, those perceptions, those perhaps feelings, thought processes, coming and going in this field of awareness. Where is the I in all of that? Just knowing. And then there are moments when we get pulled into the story, the drama of our life, of me and mine, my relationship. <coughs> we notice those thoughts, come back to the simplicity of this moment. Hearing, breathing, sensing. There's perhaps the sense of the doer. I'm doing this. I'm meditating. I'm trying to get somewhere. I'm trying to understand. Notice that identification process just another phenomena, another selfing moment. Who are you when you don't look to the past for reference? Don't look to memory. But simply dwell here.
simply aware. Things being known. So I just like to take it. Turn it off. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/donate.